We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Whoa, Jonah. Jonah who? Jonah Lanto. Just, are we did single names yeah, on the I, intro now? I guess now? so. It's like Madonna. Don Palumbo? Yeah. It just, it threw me off. I, I feel like I was going very slow and I was like, Jonah Lanto. How about that? Slow down. Slow down. Yes, Don Palumbo, Jonah Lanto. That's how we do this thing. That's how we do it. That's how we do it. I breaking, breaking traditions here. <laughs> speaking of new, speaking of, I won't say it's a broken tradition, but it's a new, it's a new uh, hopefully tradition. tradition. We're coming at you for the first time from Laughing Sun Brewery in Bismarck, North Dakota. Not only do they make delicious beer and food here, it's a pretty awesome venue. So big thanks to them for having us, and a big thanks to our audience. I was going to say for braving the cold, but given that the temperature has flipped by like seventy degrees in the last five days, thanks for braving the heat wave to get out here in uh, you know really yeah. warm December. I walked Minot, out of my house and I was sweating today, and I was like, "What is Bismarck. what is this? This is this is amazing." So yeah, we'll take we'll take this thirty degree weather in uh, two days after Christmas, three days, whatever, two days. Look, after it, Christmas. it's hoodie weather in the mid Midwest when it's like thirty two degrees after it's been below fifty for a freaking <laughs> solid week. We're my cracking a window at this gracious. point. Yeah. So again, thanks to all of you for being here with us, and thanks to everyone who takes time out of their busy life to jump on iTunes or Spotify and rate. Midwest murder. The comments and feedback, we love to hear that stuff. It really means a lot to us. And so, Don, I'm kind of curious, what are people saying about Midwest murder these days? This name makes me giggle. Uh, Hammertoe, 1991. Hammertoe. <laughs> Five stars. I have a new hobby. I was first introduced to the podcast on a whim. My wife and I decided to try something different and attended a live recording of the most recent episode, which I named, thank you. Cool. To me, the... That was them saying it, not me, by the way. I didn't name that one. To me, the level of detail given in each of the episodes brings to light more information than I had previously known. Having grown up in the Minot area, I am familiar with several of these episodes, but feel like I'm experiencing the murders as if it's the first time I'm hearing about each one. It's a new favorite way to pass time or the bit of noise I have on while I'm busy with other chores. Well, thank you. That's very cool. Right on. Very cool. And then uh, Dan the Tree Man 2000. Oh, the names in these ones, Hammertoe and Dan the Tree Man. I think I'm going to make that. My new hobby is like leaving reviews with like the coolest names possible. If these two guys were, they, they would be like a B-plus superhero team with those names. <laughs> um, hot dish, exclamation point. Had a blast listening to the show's entire run. This has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts for so many reasons. I'm a lifelong NODAC and local law enforcement. Recognizing so many of these cases has brought a sense of realism to the entertainment side of the show. Listening to Don and Jonah is like hanging out with old friends and truly makes the show. 
It's very cool. Thank you. Keep up the good work and can't wait to catch a live show. P.S. Don is absolutely correct. The only things open after midnight are legs in hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and and then what a perfect way to introduce our merch since we redesigned that T-shirt and I think we have a couple left. Yeah, you can get brand new shirts and that you can get, of course, that saying on our T-shirts. We have the ever famous divorce is easier than murder. And we've redesigned some of the graphics and also added some new ones. We've gone local with our merch. We're, we're pretty proud of that. We're pr- proud of all of our local partnerships. So now all of our merchandise is sold on www.toomanyshirts. That's T-O-O, toomanyshirts.com forward slash Midwest murder. Midwest. Dash murder. Midwest dash murder. Yeah. Thank you. That's very important. Yeah. So too many shirts.com forward slash Midwest hyphen murder. We're going to put that all over it's, our socials. We'll make it easy yeah. for you to access. You can also buy us a hot dish at www.buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest murder. Shout out to all of our buy me a coffee members. And that's, that helps us get case files. It helps us, you know, travel to venue to venue. And it, it just, it really, really assists us because Oddly enough, you have to pay for case files. So case we, files and we databases. Really, and yeah, we really appreciate that. Have you ever wondered how the stories of the people you love most will live on after they're gone? Midwest Memoirs is here to help you capture the most precious memories of your loved ones as told in their voice. This is done with research of your family member and completed through a professionally guided interview in a comfortable studio setting using state-of-the-art recording equipment. The most important stories we'll ever hear are those of the people we love most. Contact Midwest Memoirs today on Facebook or Instagram. Today we're going back to 1993. I feel like this was a big year for a lot of murders. We have we <laughs> every have, year, I think. Well, but. that too, but but 93 has 93 was a, exceptionally busy for murder. I don't wild. intentionally keep coming back here. I, it just sort I don't of think happens. We have a choice. Right? Yeah, evidently we do not have a choice. And what was happening in 1993? Well, Don, you were probably staying up late on a Friday night to catch the raunchy hit cartoon Beavis and Butthead on MTV. Absolutely was. 100%. Bunch of y'all were out there. I know you were Mm -hmm. way past your mom and dad's bedtime. 1993 also featured the debut of such animated classics as Rocco's Modern Life, Animaniacs, and my personal favorite, Space Ghost Coast to Coast. That's where I was first introduced to Brack. Nice. I love Brack. I could, if you guys want afterwards, I'll even sing a couple Brack tunes. It's, they're, they're amazing. Best. I won't actually. Talk show ever. In 1993, on April 28th, the United States Air Force can now allow women to fly warplanes after a previous combat exclusion was lifted. So 1993, women can fly planes into war for the United States Armed Forces. That's nice. Really, it really took a, it didn't take long at all. The artist Prince changes his name to a symbol. I mean, who could forget that? June 20th. And and he was the artist formerly known known as as, Prince at that point in time Mm -hmm. because you can't pronounce the symbol. How do I refer to this person now? The first high-speed train travels from England to France via the Channel Tunnel, which opened to the public in 1994. Didn't they call it the Channel? The Channel? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. It I wasn't like trying a dad to be joke. funny. I'm, I'm actually serious. I think they did. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. No, I was even funny when I wasn't even trying. Disney's, and now I won't be funny ever again. It's great. You'll be funny a bunch more times, <laughs> I promise. 
Disney Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is re-released in cinemas. It's actually the first film to be scanned to digital files, manipulated, and then recorded back to film in its entirety. It's a big deal now that now digital restoration is just it's the thing. It's everywhere. And in, on September 6, 1993, the first known reference to Y2K is published in Computer World magazine with an article by a Canadian software specialist titled Doomsday 2000. Did, I, I made it. Did you survive, Don? I, I am here. We had, here. A big, we had a big Y2K we had, we party at my house. We had such a big party. We had a big party. Snoop Doggy Dog brought us Doggy Style. Oh, man. I love that is still one of my favorite albums to this day. Notorious drug lord Pablo Escobar is gunned down by police in Colombia. The first person video game shooter Doom was released and Jurassic Park was the most popular film of 1993. I mean it was a good year. I, I mean obviously. It's a damn fine year. A little murdery but a really good year. I mean how can you live here with these winters? That's a question Midwesterners get asked quite a bit. And in my experience, the three most common answers are, well, it keeps the riffraff out. It doesn't. People are dying all the time, and even in winter. It's the nice people, my family and friends. And the last one I hear a lot, Don, it's because it's beautiful in the summertime. Do you want to know my answer to that? Absolutely. Is because I don't want to have to see a spider that would be the size that I needed to put a saddle on it. Like, I don't need to ride a spider around because they're so freaking large. Like, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. I don't want any part of it. Spider so. fear keeping yeah. you in the tundra. Yeah. Drive through just about any Midwest town, large or small, in the summertime. You'll see almost nothing but friendly waves and big smiles. People soaking up every last bit of the sun that they can. Patios are occupied, beverages are cold, grills are running hot. You'll see kids running around in their swimsuits, riding bikes, playing neighborhood games, running through sprinklers. Summer is the best time when you're a Midwest kid, and it's a great excuse to live in your swimsuit. Always ready, even eager to jump in a pool or hit a slip and slide. Six-year-old Amber Duncan was one of those kids who couldn't get enough of summer. She spent hours playing Barbies, riding her big wheel, and enjoying all the peak summer moments with her best friend and neighbor, Brittany Asby. The girls never seemed to tire, and little Amber never seemed to run out of commentary or questions. Answering her inquiries often became a tiresome task for Amber's 10-year-old sister, Candy, short for Candace. But the girls loved one another. They looked out for each other and were very close. Kindness was a characteristic the two no doubt inherited from their hardworking single mother, 38-year-old Lori Duncan. Lori, a Navy veteran with a passion for Elvis Presley, enjoyed the sunshine as much as the kids did. In fact, they were all outside on that beautiful summer day, July 25th, when Lori's mother, Marge Milbrath, drove by and waved at her daughter on the way to the grocery store. Hi, Mom, Lori shouted and waved back, showing a Cheshire smile. Later that afternoon, around 3 p.m., Amber Duncan was called home. She said goodbye to her best friend, Brittany Asby, and pranced across the street wearing her favorite red swimsuit. 
It was the last time anyone saw Amber Duncan alive. Amber, Candy, and Lori, along with Lori's boyfriend, Greg Nicholson, were heading off for a picnic that day. But then something strange happened. A woman selling makeup knocked on their door. She was lost and seeking directions. When Lori answered, a man barged in brandishing a gun. He slammed the door shut and quickly started giving orders at gunpoint. There was a commotion. The terrified children were forced to watch as the strange people tied up the adults and gagged them with children's socks. Afterward, so the, the 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 sales of the Avon lady, I presume, presume right? Yep. I mean, trademark. I get it. I presume she was a part of it. Is that probably? Am I, am I jumping yeah. ahead? No, I mean no. you're not jumping ahead. It's okay. it's a pretty safe assumption. Okay. Yeah, I mean she she gets up there and fakes her move, and dude comes in behind her, and the kids were forced to watch as these two people tied up the adults and gagged them with the children's socks. Afterward, the saleswoman ushered Amber and Candy into a bedroom, telling the girls everything was going to be okay and to pack a few bags because they're all going on a little surprise vacation. Only no one ever returned from the surprise vacation. When Marge Milbrath, Lori's mother, drove by Lori's house the next day, July 26th, she knew something was wrong. The house looked dark and showed no signs of activity. The curtains were shut and Lori's car was parked erratically in front of the house. Lori didn't return phone calls, so a little while later, Marge returned with her husband and the two let themselves in to Lori's home. And the house was eerily silent and it was messy Although there were no outward appearances of a struggle or violence present, Marge knew something was wrong the moment she stepped foot in the door. Her daughter's house was never messy. Last night's supper, hardly touched, was still sitting on the kitchen table, and the cookware used to make the supper unwashed. It appeared Lori had packed in a hurry and left just as quickly. The beds were clearly unslept, and a note written to a neighbor left an ambiguous message. Phyllis, had to leave on short notice. We'll be in touch shortly. Love, Lori. And that's when the Milbraths called the police to report their daughter and grandchildren missing. It was during this missing persons investigation that the truth of Lori's new boyfriend, Greg, revealed itself. Lori Duncan, the hard-working single mother with a heart of gold, let Greg Nicholson move into their home a little more than a month prior. And she hadn't known Greg for very long, but she felt for the man because he was going through rehab, trying to get sober, and she wanted to give the guy a break when no one else would. And Lori knew Greg previously sold drugs However, Lori did not know just how deep in the game her new boyfriend was. Greg wasn't there because he loved Lori or because he was some upstanding guy trying to get sober. Greg Nicholson was hiding, and he was hiding from a man who would stop at nothing to protect his empire. 
Dustin Honkin. Born March 22, 1968, Dustin Honkin of Britt, Iowa, was a lifelong schemer, a trait he undoubtedly inherited from his father, Jim, who once enlisted his teenage son to steal the key to a bank and copy it so Jim could rob the place. So, so Jim really raised in a loving, supportive home, I'm sure. Like, I love you so much. Now go copy that key to a bank. Yeah. Can you say, kiddo, sneak in there and swipe that key? We're going to make copies. I'm going to rob the place. You'll get some new toys. Jim was eventually convicted of multiple bank robberies that led him to a very long federal prison stay. Okay, but also, how about the time when you just needed to make a copy of a key to a bank to rob it? I mean... I feel like you need to make multiple keys now, you know, to, to do that. Yeah. And digital and you need key yeah. cards. You need fingerprints. And... Well, Honkin's parents were divorced by the time he turned nine. Honkin, the middle of three children, had a healthy relationship with his mom. She eventually remarried and by all accounts provided a stable, loving environment for her children. And Dustin got along well with his stepfather. In school, Dustin was an exceptional student with high proficiency in math and science. And the boy got along well with his brother. However, the same cannot be said for his sister, Alyssa. So he didn't get along with Alyssa? He did not get along with Alyssa. More like, well, you'll see. In spite of appearances... Hang on. Can I make a prediction? Bold he, prediction. He absolutely does not have a stable, healthy relationship with his mother. He's got mommy issues, and that's why he does not like his sister, Alyssa. We'll see. Okay. Well, do you want me to tell you if you're right? I don't know. Let's let's make it a game. It's fine. In spite of appearances, Dustin Honkin was doing a lot of terrible shit, and his mother was completely unable to control his deviant nature. Now, it's uncertain as to whether she was blind or ignorant to it or simply tried and failed to manage Dustin Honkin's behavior. But he was physically and verbally abusive of his sister, Alyssa. He once suffocated her with a pillow and after nearly killing her, lifted the pillow off her face, then crumpled up and started crying and apologized profusely. On another occasion, Dustin tried drowning Alyssa in a hotel pool. And eventually he pulled up and let her out and and pulled her out of the pool. But over the years, due to his abuse of her, she was perpetually lived in fear of her brother, Dustin, and was always trying to please him. I'm I'm taking back my psychoanalysis, my completely uneducated psychoanalysis. But how old how old was Alyssa at this point? Like, what was the age difference? He a uh, handful of years, not very, not so not was, very many. Was she like she was younger. little or he's middle, she's okay. older, she's the youngest. Oh, okay. In 1984, Dustin Honkin pl- plotted a bank robbery in which he intended on killing his robbery partner afterward. In '86. He stole a car and then intended on killing his accomplice. Between 1986 and 1989, Dustin Honkin developed plans to murder his brother's business partner and cash in on a life insurance policy. In 1990, Honkin raped his girlfriend and then threatened to kill her if she told anyone and openly wondered how long any how long it would take someone to come find her if he just locked her up in the basement and left her there to rot. 
So super stand-up guy. Yeah. Well, his not-so-illustrious resume doesn't end there. Dustin Honkin obtained a scholarship to North Iowa Area Community College in 1991. He uh, was attending with dreams of becoming a pharmaceutical lawyer. By then, Honkin was an established drug dealer specializing in marijuana and cocaine. But after earning an A- in chemistry class, Honkin developed a newfound enthusiasm for drug manufacturing. He saw a big opportunity to become not just the manufacturer, but also the wholesale distributor. And the network to make it a success was already in place thanks to his established customer base from the weed and cocaine sales. So he's, I mean, he's clearly a monster, right? Um, but what's even more terrifying is he's super smart too. So he's a super smart monster. Highly intelligent cool. and... Makes me want to sleep easier at night. Would it sure. make you think of him as more or less of a monster if I told you he is totally rocking serial killer glasses? Oh, I mean, it was a given. It's given. It was a given. So, yeah, rocking the Dahmer serial serial killer glasses. Actually, had like really short blonde hair, nice fair skin. So like kind of a good looking, good looking guy. Serial killer glasses all the way. I have a I have a small confession to make. I may have just ordered. Pair of those from Zinni. Oh, I, I'm I getting a I pair did. too. Then we're going to be going to be teamers. Yeah. Like many business ventures, Honkin's endeavor required a little startup capital and a partner. As such, Honkin's lifelong friend since first grade, Timothy Cutcomp, joined the operation with a strict understanding that Honkin was in charge. Jeffrey Honkin, the older brother financed the effort with a $5,000 investment. Jeffrey's company also legally purchased the chemicals required to manufacture the dirtiest drug in the Midwest, methamphetamines. So legally purchased all, like the pseudoephedrine and all that stuff. I mean, obviously there weren't any regulations at this point. This is 93 right. or whatever, 91, whatever. Yeah, 92, 91, mm -hmm. 92. Absolutely. Yeah, no, little to no regulation I mean, at all sure. on that stuff yeah. at all. Yeah. In 1992, Dustin Honkin and Timothy Cutcomp relocated to a remote house on the south side of Tucson, Arizona, where they started cooking meth. Honkin was methodical, with a strong understanding of the scientific processes. What he learned in college was extended through tireless hours at the public library studying chemistry books. The men produced several pounds of nearly pure meth and drove it back to the north to northern Iowa, distributing exclusively to two dealers, 32-year-old Terry DeGuise and 34-year-old Greg Nicholson. Honkin and Cutcomp profited over $100,000 on the first run. Initially, things went pretty smooth. And after several more runs, they were sitting on hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow. I, you know, sometimes I do question my career choices. I mean, I know it's like against the law and everything, but man, you know, the profiting over $100,000 on one run. With a $5,000 capital investment. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, you, you know, you got Walter, a partner to boss around Walter White this, you know, and, and don't take your product. Right. Like, don't don't consume your product. You're the smartest businessman alive. At least with I mean, Walter White became a scumbag. He didn't start off as one. This guy was, sh- was right. a he shit was human from the start. From the start. Yeah. So on one of the drug runs, Dustin Honkin was introduced to Angela Johnson, the girlfriend of Timothy DeGuise. The relationship between DeGuise and Johnson was tragic, abusive, and addiction-fueled. Angela Johnson had lived a very difficult and traumatic life. She was abused as a child and subjected to extremely dubious religious rituals. I mean, what do you like? What do you mean by dubious? Don, I'm really glad you asked. Like, aside from the, you know, the average Lutheran on Sunday, I mean... Several times in her life, Angela was pinned down while her grandparents chanted in tongues and waved Bibles at her. These exorcisms continued throughout most of her childhood. That, coupled with abuse and neglect, she ultimately dropped out of school and just started working. Angela earned her GED, maintained a job, and was considered a good employee at Mason City Country Club, and many people considered Angela a good friend. And so, right, of course, she's going to pay attention or going to, you know, jump at the first guy that pays enough attention to her because her family certainly didn't take care of her. No, no, they, they put her through hell. You know, chanting in tongues, like, that's where... And getting pinned down through, like, like the... People like, that were, I, I, and I don't mean chanting in tongues. I mean, but in like the the you know waving a Bible and it's like, anyway, that's maybe for another podcast. But it just just weirds me out. Like, do you, yeah, it's dubious. It's yeah. a dubious ritual for sure. I don't know that it benefits people unless they're truly. I don't know. And I am like all for you know you absolutely you do whatever religion makes you happy and brings you joy and whatever you believe in. Where it starts to become abuse, that's where I that's where like hmm. Yeah. So at some point in the early to mid 80s, Angela started using meth off and on. Now, the addiction lost her some of those friends. And I wanted to point out, I guess, I think something that is often forgotten with some forms of addiction is how many functioning addicts we have out there who hold down jobs, who love their kids, who care for their kids. They get them to school. They make sure they're still clothed and they're fed. But they've got this secret thing that they're doing and that they need to do. So by the late 80s, Angela Johnson was a single mother in an abusive relationship with Terry DeGuise. And the couple, they were known to local police. Officers responded to numerous domestic calls to their residents over the years, oftentimes arriving to find Angela Johnson beaten, bloodied, and bruised, Terry DeGuise beat her so bad one time she wasn't recognizable. And sadly, most of the time, there was very little law enforcement could do because Angela Johnson always refused to press charges. Doug Book was the responding officer on one such call that led to the arrest of Terry DeGuise, and there was a scuffle, and DeGuise managed to break Officer Doug Book's arm. Weeks later, Terry DeGuise had custom shirts printed making a joke that he broke a cop's arm. 
And he handed all those t-shirts out to friends. So it was like, oh, hey, here's a free t-shirt with your baggie of meth. I broke a cop's arm. You got the most badass meth dealer in town. And and here's a t-shirt. And here's a t-shirt. I broke Doug Book's arm. I'm real proud. All right. So that little history lesson brings us back up to sometime in early 1992 and the drug deals with Dustin Honkin, his partner and best friend since first grade Timothy Cutcomp, their two main dealers in northern Iowa, Greg Nicholson and Terry DeGuise. At one of these meetings, Angela pulls Honkin aside, telling him, Terry's twacked out and smoking half the meth he should be selling. You should just deal with me from now on. Honkin was receptive to her suggestion. Things between Angela and Honkin developed rapidly, and just six months later, she was pregnant with his child. Although business carried on as usual between all the drug dealers for a time, the romantic high of this match made in a meth bulb was about to burn out. Gregory... (laughs) Sorry, that (laughs) was... That one, that one caught me off guard, I guess. <laughs> Grace, a slow burn. That was because it's so bad. Like <laughs> it was a match made in a meth ball, but it was about to burn out. Yeah. Good Greg set in the buddy. vibes there. <laughs> Gregory Nicholson became the target of a Minnesota law enforcement investigation and unwittingly sold meth to an undercover agent. Following that transaction, Nicholson's house was raided in March of 93. During the search, officers found over five ounces of pure meth, a substantial amount of cash, and an unregistered gun. So, this is what Greg Nicholson didn't share with Lori Duncan. He only stopped dealing drugs after getting busted by state law enforcement. During that investigation... Greg Nicholson agreed to cooperate with police, turning state's witness. On March 21st, 1993, Nicholson wore a wire during a meeting with Dustin Honkin. The men discussed business, and by business I mean meth. And the session finished with Honkin paying Nicholson $3,000 for previous methamphetamine deliveries. Honkin and Cutcomp were arrested the same day and indicted in April. The state charges were elevated to federal charges for conspiracy to manufacture and traffic methamphetamine after Nicholson's grand jury testimony. Dustin Honkin advised the court, I'm going to plead guilty. And a plea hearing was scheduled for July 30th, 1993. Honkin was released on bond with specific conditions. I'm guessing one of those conditions wasn't to tell your live-in partner that, you know, you've got some legal issues. Oh, yeah. Gosh, yeah, he, he was prohibited from possessing a firearm and from contacting Cutcomp, as well as DeGuise, Nicholson, and several other men involved in their drug trade. He also moved back to Iowa from Arizona. In the weeks after his arrest, Greg Nicholson lived in fear and paranoia, certain that someone was out to get him. He rarely left the house strictly forbidding his wife and child from going outside during the day, and he kept the drapes shuttered at all times. Nicholson's wife wasn't even allowed to stand by the window for more than a few seconds before he'd start tweaking out on her. So was he he still using at this point? After he got busted, yeah, sure. 
Yeah. He was still using? Yeah. Okay. Presumably, yes. Yeah, I mean, so the, I mean, the level... He's using heavily entering that, of course, sure. right? You're using right. pure meth pretty right. regularly. I mean, so, I mean, the, the level of paranoia there is, like, not your average pot paranoia. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is, like, heavy it's, stuff. I mean, back from, you know, from my days uh, as a correctional officer, there was a, there was an inmate who thought that the task force had implanted um, a thing in his tooth. like A, a listening mean, device yeah, in his and tooth. Yeah, they bugged his tooth, right? So they bugged was, my head. It was meth bugs, but not not the same bug, sir. Sorry. That's probably not far off from where yeah. Greg Nicholson is, and that was sure. the end of his relationship with his wife. She gave him the boot, and he drifted for a few weeks before being introduced by a mutual friend to Lori Duncan. Oh, I had that confused. Okay, so that... His wife was not Lori Duncan. They were just no. dating. That's right. And I no. and I knew that, but I... He got popped him. and started acting mm-hmm. even more weird. And his wife was like, get the fuck out of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, after drifting, some asshole introduced him to poor sweet Larry Duncan. I don't know who that mutual friend is, but you suck. And it was sometime in July, she agreed to let Greg Nicholson stay in her house. When Greg Nicholson met Lori Duncan, he wasn't some nice guy, recovering addict looking for love. Nicholson was looking for somewhere to hide. And what better place than with someone he previously had no connection to? A single mom in the suburbs. Big-hearted Lori Duncan. After telling the court he intended on pleading guilty, Dustin Honkin learned through court documents that Greg Nicholson was the informant. This meant the federal case relied heavily on Nicholson's testimony. Throughout most of June and into July, Honkin and Angela Johnson went out all across the city, frantically searching everywhere for Nicholson. And when the two went out searching, it was Angela's best friend, Christy Galbats, who babysit for Angela. She also let the two borrow her vehicle. Johnson and Honkin used her car because they didn't want it to be recognized by Nicholson when they were out hunting for him. On June 30th, Angela Johnson obtained a gun permit. On July 7th, she purchased a 9mm Tech 9 handgun in Waterloo, Iowa. On July 24th, 1993, when Christy Galbats was asked to babysit, rather than return around midnight as usual, Honkin and Johnson returned home at 5 a.m. And when they returned, Christy heard them whisper, then go into the bathroom. The shower immediately started running, and Christy left and went home. It was the last time Galbats was asked to babysit or to loan her car. On July 25th, 1993, Greg Nicholson went missing at the same time as 31-year-old Lori Duncan, 10-year-old Candy Duncan, and 6-year-old Amber on July 30th, Dustin Honkins showed up to his plea hearing and announced he was no longer going to plead guilty because he heard Greg Nicholson skip town and wasn't going to testify. Furthermore, Dustin Honkins gave his attorney a VHS tape, which he claimed was left on his car. On the tape, a recording of Greg Nicholson absolving Dustin Honkin of any wrongdoing. Nicholson also claimed he had to set Honkin up to take the fall 
because the government was forcing him to give them someone. Honkin's lawyer revealed this information to the court, but was not required and did not play the VHS for the government. I feel like that's going to come back around and anger me. Maybe. <laughs> it might. It's, I mean, it's quite the scenario. You got a guy in federal drug charges, all of a sudden witness skips town. By the way, here's a, I got a tape he made for me saying but, he didn't. But for the love of Pete, don't watch it. It's not well, necessary. Let's not play it in court. I think the lawyer was saying like, if you want me to play this tape, you're going to have to charge us and take us to court. And, and now they're feeling without the witness, they don't have enough to take him. So it was a really dicey situation. But law enforcement wasn't about to give up. With Nicholson gone, the government focused, focused its attention on Terry DeGuise. On October 27th, 1993, law enforcement subpoenaed several more witnesses, including Angela Johnson and Aaron Ryerson. Ryerson was a longtime customer and client of DeGuise and Johnson. At the grand jury hearing, Ryerson invoked his right to re remain silent. Afterward, he told Terry that Honkin and Terry were the subjects of another grand jury investigation. Now, this set off a chain reaction. Hang on. I feel like I need a flow chart for that. So, Ryerson, Ryerson was subpoenaed. He was, he was a customer. Yep. DeGuise and Johnson, Am uh, Angela Johnson, she's the... They're the dealers. Yep. Okay. They're, they're the dealers. They're a couple. They were so, a former couple. Yep. Yep. Okay. So... Ryerson is like, nope, I ain't saying shit. I, I, and then, right to remain silent. Plead the fifth. Ryerson calls up Terry and he's like, hey, and they're coming Terry? for you. Who's Terry? Terry DeGuise. Oh, that's yep. DeGuise. Okay. Yep. All right. So he calls up Terry DeGuise and he's like, dude, they're coming for you. Mm -hmm. You and Honk and they're coming for you. So this sets off a, re a chain reaction. Then Terry calls Angela. He's freaking out. He's like, what the hell's going on here? Okay. Angela calls Dustin and freaks out. And when Dustin hears about it, Dustin doesn't freak out. He starts planning. That is because he is a maniac and he is terrifying. Yeah, yes. he's got a plan. No panic. Just going to plan my way out of this. On November 5th, 1993, age 32, Terry DeGuise went missing. On the day he disappeared, Angela Johnson called DeGuise's mother and told his mother to have Terry call her. Later that day, Terry also told Aaron Ryerson that he was going to see Angela. So DeGuise dropped his 10-year-old dropped his daughter off at Grandma's and told them, hey, I'm going to go meet Angela. Terry DeGuise never returned from the meeting. Naturally, Angela Johnson was the first person law enforcement and DeGuise's family questioned regarding his whereabouts. Now, at first, when they're interrogating her, she denied seeing him at all. Then, after they grilled her some more, she admitted that she did see him for a little bit and they talked, but that he left. Uh, I have no idea where this is going and I know I'm making a lot of speculations tonight. I have no idea why, um, but there's no way he left. There's no way yeah. he didn't leave. She was totally a part of it. I'm well, done. I'm done with, yeah. I'm done with yeah, yeah, no, I mean, you, you might be right. Maybe he just left. He's like, well, I don't, I don't want to go to court. I got a bunch of money. I've made all this meth money. I'm just going to get out of here. He didn't leave. The missing, the missing person investigation stalled. Almost immediately. There's no witnesses, no body, no, no murder weapons. He just seemingly vanished. Now, Angela and Christy Gaubatz were very close friends. So close they had keys to each other's house. So they would come and go as they please a lot. So in the winter of 1993 to 94, Christy found a black handgun with a silencer while cleaning a bedroom closet in her house. 
It was inside a makeup bag. Christy it, called hey, Angela. Hang on. In her own home? Not in her Angela's own home, home. Not in Angie's oh, home. Oh, I was going to say, I was like, you know, my friends are my ride or dies, and I know that they would do anything, but I don't know that I want them to clean my bedroom closet for me. So <laughs> I, I misunderstood that. That makes more sense. She was cleaning yeah. her own uh, bedroom Cleaning her closet. own closet. Okay. And wow, holy shit, there's a gun in this right. makeup bag, WTF. So she calls Angela freaking out, telling her, get this gun the hell out of my house. And Angela says, oh, don't worry. Dustin will take care of that. Now, Honkin was careful to cover his tracks, and with the help of Timothy Cutcomp, he melted and cut the gun with a torch and then randomly threw the pieces out the window on Iowa country roads. After the disappearance of Greg Nicholson and Terry DeGuise, the government couldn't prosecute Dustin Honkin, but left the indictment pending. Honkin continued operating his meth ring. Honkin... Johnson, Cutcomp, and Christy Gaubatz took several more road trips back to Arizona to recover all of the equipment and everything they had there for a new lab in Iowa and to purchase more chemicals. From March of 93 through 1995, Honkin and Timothy Cutcomp experimented with drug manufacturing basically anywhere people were willing to let them set their operation up. Meth houses, flop houses, abandoned buildings, friends' garages. They were setting up and cooking all over Mason City, Iowa. I mean, these were, these were like the granddaddies of meth. I, I mean, they really knew how to cook it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and problems and, with the distribution angle, it seems so far. I mean, I don't right, know. But, like, but, but like setting it up for, oh, yeah. you know, the, the, the meth, um, I mean, the, the, I don't want to say outbreak, but like the craziness of the meth, um, in, in early, 2000s. I mean, you can you can just see it, like everything that they're doing. Coming. You know, when you you when you word gets out on the criminal underworld that you can spend five, ten thousand, and and potentially profit profit six figures. Right. Yeah. So after he got another capital investment from his brother in late '95, Hunkin rented a home in Mason City, Iowa, and that's where he and Cutcomp fully established their new facility in March of 1995. All pending charges against Honkin were dropped because witnesses could not be located. And the, the missing person investigation for Lori Duncan and her kids, absolute zero. Total failure of an investigation. They got nothing. It's going nowhere. And not, not a failure of investigators because clearly, they, I mean, they... Right or or maybe some maybe some hiccups here and there. There but. were definitely some hiccups. There, it, it was a very disjointed effort. Sure. Okay. There, there were jurisdictional arguments that inhibited the investigation and theories. And I mean, it's not like they didn't work on it, but right. but right. they couldn't take it far. And I think mm -hmm. they just sort of knew that somehow Nicholson was connected, and somehow Nicholson's connected to Honkin. But they but they, they couldn't prove it. They couldn't prove any of it. They have nothing. So Honkin and Cutcom. They covered themselves by working day jobs at a pudding factory, but Honkin still wanted to expand. I don't know why that's funny to me, but it is. <laughs> like Pudding by day, meth by night. <laughs> by the way, guys, that's, that's what you should write down. See, when you hear <laughs> the, the fun things, like, you know, for the episode title. So D Dustin was supremely confident that he had beaten the system, you know, since his witnesses just skipped town and all that, but not before conveniently recording an exoneration tape for him. Anyway, in order for Honkin to expand, he had to replace the missing drug dealer employees. In the fall of 1995, 
Honkin recruited a man from his day job by the name of Daniel Cobean. Daniel Cobean had been listening to the overconfident criminal chatter of Dustin Honkin for quite some time. Honkin boasted proudly of disappearing witnesses and suggested he had plans to kill investigating law enforcement agents. When Dustin Honkin asked Cobean to be part of the team, Cobean said he was totally into the idea. But soon after the final recruitment effort, which included an introduction to four other dealers, as well as Angela Johnson for their approval in the new team, Daniel Cobean went to police and told them everything. For nearly eight months after that, Daniel Cobean became the centerpiece in a massive investigation to bring Honkin down. Cobean assisted in key aspects of building the meth lab and setting up a new drug network, all as an undercover informant. On February 7th, 1996, law enforcement obtained a search warrant and raided Honkin's house. I really hope Cobean's safe. <laughs> Has it worked oh. out? Has it worked well for the other guys? Yeah, you just giggled at my at my comment, so I'm a little concerned. No, I like I like that you hope he's safe. And I mean, what a guy! I, I mean, just, well, and maybe he's dude, a shitbag too. I don't know, but he seems like dude's you know, got balls. Like, he's like this guy's out there yeah. killing people. He's telling me about it. He wants me to be his meth partner buddy. I'm gonna go yeah. tell police, and then the police are like, "Well, hey, we got an idea for you. Why don't you just go go help him do all that for more than almost damn near a year?" Right. I mean. And wearing then, a wire it's just it's so and also, ballsy and, and don't get dead okay cool yeah. thanks like that's it's a lot of the cops to ask of cobian oh so. i mean how else were they going to get him i mean what you got to do what you got to do you think they put him on payroll probably he deserves uh, it as he deserves under- it <laughs> probably not in addition to a methamphetamine laboratory chemicals and equipment law enforcement seized Tons of paper notes and books about using counter-surveillance measures, manufacturing drugs, weapon silencers, and books on binding and gagging prisoners as well as torture. Honkin and Cutcomp were arrested on the same day that year that the White House announced a national strategy to battle meth. Hmm. What are the odds of that? Perfect timing. And so, I mean, 96-ish, I mean, this is... Big Bill time. Clinton. As, yeah. as you said, this is ramping up from yeah. the early the yeah. early 90s into the mid, into the 2000s. Right. So a few months later, on April 11th, 1996, a grand jury again indicted Dustin Honkin. And this time, the load of charges was massive, including a federal charge of conspiring with co-defendant Timothy Cutcomp to manufacture and distribute. The men were released on bond pending trial, this time with heavy restrictions, electronic monitoring, house arrest with work release, and phone monitoring. But Dustin Honkin had no intention of being stopped. While the 1996 indictment was pending, Honkin started scheming to murder Daniel Cobean, law enforcement officers, and crime lab specialists working his case. The was, and, final... You know, specialists in the crime lab are like... You know, I'm going to be on the law enforcement side of things and I'm going to be totally safe. Like totally safe. I'm going to, I'm going to be, you know, I, and coming uh, from somebody who wanted to be there, I can say this, but I'm going to be the nerd in the lab. It's going to be totally cool. And then just kidding. Someone wants to kill you. Yeah. Not only does Honkin want to kill them, the final part of his master plan to stop the investigation 
was to bomb the crime lab and destroy the evidence. Oh, wow. So he's killing spree, bombing spree. He's doing all of it on like, meth. He is really starting to annoy me. His I meth mean, plans was, are really going. He's yeah. spinning these things up, like spinning them out of that bulb, like constantly. So that was the breaking point for Timothy Cutcomp. He finally became weary of his lifelong friend, suspecting that Honkin would attempt to blame him for the missing informants in order to save himself. Although Dustin Honkin had never told him outright about what happened to Nicholson and DeGuise, Cutcomp was certain his old friend killed them. Instead of going along with this round of insane plans from Dustin Honkin, Timothy Cutcomp became a state witness and wore a wire, capturing more than eight hours of incriminating footage in which Honkin discussed his 93 charges, referenced witnesses that had been eliminated, and described his plan to evade the current charges. Honkin intended not only to kill witnesses, but also investigating law enforcement officers. Throughout hours of tape, Honkin compared the electricity, the excitement of killing, to the tingling excitement before a rivalry football game, saying, quote, once you go a certain distance, there ain't no turning back. All right, hard charger. Like, settle down a little bit. Like, this is, this guy sucks. Yeah, fucking hard charging his way on in. He fantasized about destroying evidence, buying a gun, killing investigators, and killing Dan Cobian, who he called a rat. Quote, I've climbed far bigger hills than that little hill. Even if I'm in prison for 15 years, whatever, when I get out, he's still dead. When Cutcomp expressed concern over killing witnesses, Honkin said that they had, quote, put themselves in that position. They made me choose between my family and them. I'm sorry, but that ain't no choice. Once police revealed the recorded I'm sorry, footage... Which family is he referring to? The one, the, the one that he raped? Or um, just, just curious. I probably mean, which, the ones that he killed. Okay. You know, anybody... Okay, I wasn't, I wasn't sure. I just wanted to make sure to see, you know, which one was more important to him. None there. of them were important to him. That's, I don't think... Yeah. Exactly. Once police revealed that footage to the judge, Honkin's bond was immediately revoked and he was arrested and brought into a wait trial. On June 7th, 1997, Honkin pleads guilty to conspiracy to manufacture and distribute methamphetamine. Investigators pressed him for information related to the missing persons, but Honkin stonewalled them. July 18th, 97, Cutcomp is sentenced to four and a half years in prison after pleading guilty to drug charges. The reduced sentence was announced after he implicated Honkin in manufacturing and in the disappearance of Nicholson, DeGuise, and the Duncans. Now that investigators had Honkin on record making references to witnesses, it finally ignited the missing person investigation, which to this point was disjointed and ineffective. Cutcomp's claims were the only clue police had. But he didn't know where the bodies were or any real details. And to the best of his knowledge, he had assisted in destroying the murder weapon. To police, Honkin denied any involvement in murder. But to his cellmates in county, Honkin was singing like a bird. Of course he was. He's too, he's too arrogant not to. I mean, they, they, why, why are you going to talk your murders up in prison like these guys? You can just trust these guys? 
Oh, I just met you. Oh, you're a criminal? I'm a criminal? I just can trust you with all my information. Yeah, but there's a, there's a psychological issue in there too. But, but it, what I just don't understand is, uh, I certainly don't want to give tips on how to get away with crime. However, like, just, man, keep your mouth shut. Like, it's always a thing. You keep your mouth shut. Well, he And again, was... I don't want, I don't, I'm fine that he talked. I, I'm glad that he Me got too. caught. But also, it's just like, he you, you, can, you, can see, you can see the arrogance and stupidity. Even though this guy is, you know, probably genius level intelligence. Yep. He, he I mean, he, he gets in his own way because he needs to have that. Uh, Some sort of like reassurance. Re oh, yeah, you're a badass, That, that dude. validation. Yeah. 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 Not only did he confess to murdering witnesses while in prison or in jail, Honkin recruited a fellow inmate who was getting out soon to go to Cutcom's house and murder him. He gave the guy a map to Cutcom's house and agreed to, to pay him to do it when he got out. Then he devised a plan to escape from jail by breaking a hole in the wall of his cell and having Angela deliver a hacksaw and rope. And he initiated that plan and was actually working on it. And guards discovered the plot and put a stop to it. And the I, other and guy... I, I realize Angela is likely a victim in this as well. Also making her own choices. I mean, so not saying that she is... That she shouldn't be held accountable by any means. But I'm ready to fight her. She's starting to piss me off too. On September 11th, 1997... The Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation agents excavate property in, Hanock, in Hancock County, unsuccessfully attempting to locate the five missing persons. And I'll follow up with those thoughts on Angela toward the end here because I think there's some important questions to ask about who she was and what her motives really were through sure. all this. In February of 1998, at sentencing, Honkin's attorney argued for leniency suggesting he was a science lab nerd who got mixed up with the wrong people. Quote, the court needs to consider his age. He can be re rehabilitated. This is an intelligent young man. The prosecution argued not just for the maximum sentence, but for a sentencing enhancement on the grounds that Honkin had something to do with the disappearances of Nicholson, Laurie, Candace, Amber, and DeGuise. Quote, it appears that these people are dead. We believe the defendant was involved in this. We believe that he was ready to take violent actions again. The maximum sentence sends a message to this defendant and others who are thinking about taking things into their own hands. The judge imposed sentencing enhancements on Honkin for attempting to obstruct justice and having a major role in the conspiracy and granted a deduction for Honkin accepting responsibility. The judge, however, declined to rule on whether Honkin likely had a role in the disappearances. So Honkin was scheduled to serve between 19 and 24 years. He was given the maximum of 24 years. In 1999... Hang on a second. Yep. So he imposed the sentencing enhancement, but then... Also gave a deduction. But then deduced that because, reduced that because he accepted responsibility. Yep. Very minimal reduction. Okay. Because normally for this type of charge, you could have got like 25 to 30, and that was where the deduction came in. So we're going to give him 19 to 24, and they went with the most of that. Sure. In 99, the prosecution, and I thought this was weird. So I've, this is like, I feel like a first time for me. The prosecution appealed 
the sentencing deduction due to the severity of Honkett's attempt to obstruct the investigation. And the appellate court agreed, adding that, quote, one can easily conclude from witness testimony that Honkin caused the disappearance of one or more persons, including prospective prosecution witnesses. Without the deduction, Honkin faced 27 to 33.75 years in prison. During his resentencing hearing in January 2000, Honkin again asked for leniency, saying he had successfully participated in the drug rehab program and taken educational programs while in jail. He claimed he had nothing to do with the 1993 disappearances. Quote, for years now, the government has made these terrible accusations against me. I didn't kill anyone. And even though that hasn't been proven, the accusations have repeatedly been used against me. I realize I'm here because of my own actions. I'm sorry for what I've done, but I haven't done these heinous crimes the government accuses me of. I have seen people get murdered here and being in a place like this makes the sentence I have now almost like a death sentence. Hold on a second. So the government has made these terrible accusations against me, blah, 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 blah. I'm really sorry for what I've done, but I haven't done what they say. All right, piece of shit. What did you do then? Well, like, he did the meth shit. You know, he's like, I'm sorry I was, I was you know, a, a meth king, but I didn't murder anybody. I don't know. Bennett resentenced Honkin to 27 years in prison, saying the minimum sentence was sufficiently harsh. Referring to the 93 disappearances, the judge said that while the government had made a compelling case for Honkin likely being responsible, his view was that if law enforcement believed Honkin was a murderer, then they should charge him with murder. While, while in prison, Honkin continued to develop escape plans Make plans to murder witnesses, law enforcement officers, and the federal prosecutor. To prepare for his escape, he recruited a team, and Honkin and those, his team practiced sequences of retrieving an officer's weapon, learning how to remove handcuffs with minimal tools, and training in specific martial arts scenarios centering around encounters with an armed escort. Fucking planner. But... Schemer. But yet... The minimum sentence was was harsh enough, but this garbage dump of a human being is running through drills in his own little, you know, prison SWAT team. And, <laughs> like, seriously? Prisoner SWAT. Yeah. Meanwhile, law enforcement never stopped pursuing the missing person cases. All the while he was locked up, police felt strongly that Angela Johnson knew something, but she wasn't budging. In the months following the resentencing hearing in 2000, Christy Galbats came forward to police with new information. She told them about Honkin and Johnson's search for Nicholson, of them borrowing her car, and about the gun she found in her closet. Finally, police had enough to make an arrest for the murders of Greg Nicholson, the Duncan family, and Terry DeGuise. Angela Johnson was arrested at her job at the country club and a grand jury later indicted Angela Johnson in July of 2000 and formally charged her for the murders. I just, I really love when witnesses come forward with more information. Like that's one of my favorite parts It is you likely had your reasons and they were probably fear, you know, for not sure. coming forward. And so we don't, you know, we don't, we don't get to shame them for that. I mean, it's, 
whatever. They, it's never they, too late to come forward. It's never too late to come forward. And so the fact that I, I just makes it to be one of my favorite parts when, when someone is like, hang on, that wasn't right. And, and comes forward. I can still I just, do the right thing. I just love that. Mm-hmm. Although Angela had lived a life within the undercurrents of legal society, she had no criminal history and no time on the inside, which meant she had no friends there. Enter career criminal Bobby Jean McNeese. Bobby Jean McNeese was serving a life sentence for attempting to import $5 million of heroin and morphine, a transaction he facilitated while locked up in prison for bank robbery. It's making five, $5 million drug transactions I locked mean, up in prison. Not a good thing, but you've got to commend him for his skills there. That's like how do you, yeah. Well, wow. his, his resume grows. After McNeese was handed a life sentence, he was then contacted by the New York mob to run a complex drug trafficking ring in the city of Cedar Rapids from prison. Okay. But McNeese got caught in the efforts. So instead of becoming a high-status prison drug lord, McNeese became one of the most high-status snitches in Iowa history, because why not? You got to do something to make life interesting at that point, right? Wow. McNeese was looking for anything he could to reduce his sentence and had little trouble convincing Angela Johnson he could guide her through the prison process. After hollering an introduction through the cell wall, McNeese began sharing food and passing notes through the door slot. Okay, hold on. I'm going to time this out for one second. Um, are they in the same cell block or something? I mean, they're in the uh, same cause, area. Cause men and women, by law, have to be separated. He was yelling at her through the wall, and there's a something that allows them maybe to maybe like slip an adjoining notes. something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't get the map layout of it. It's a fair question. I mean, yeah, you could have just uncovered something in the Iowa prison system. (laughs) There's an issue here. (laughs) After some initial reluctance to discuss her crimes, McNeese baited Angela Johnson by suggesting he knew a lifer who would be willing to take the rap for her. The only catch? She'd have to share all the intimate details of the killings. That's when the truth finally came out. In notes and recorded conversations, Angela Johnson told Bobby McNeese everything. How is... No, I'm getting lost in the weeds here. I realize that. But notes, I understand it happens. But recorded conversations, who's passing along a tape recorder? So at some point, McNeese approaches the prison system. He's like, look, I know you're trying to get this chick for murder. I'm pretty sure I can convince her to tell me everything. So you hook oh. me up, I'll hook you up. Everybody wins. You reduce my life sentence down to 20 years. You know, like he was looking for okay. anything. So that he was a wheeler and a dealer. Because I was concerned. I, mean, I was like, I mean, I know like it's... CEO skills, $5 million transactions from prison. You think he can't negotiate with a warden? <laughs> right. No, certainly. <laughs> right. I mean, that makes yeah. that makes sense. So that, that was, was kind of the deal he presented them. He's like, "All right, I got this girl, but I'm not going to go any further." I was unless just very, I'm con- I was very concerned how he was getting recorded conversations. Yeah, very, very fair. This Iowa prison system leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> yeah, in the summer of 1993, 
Angela and Nicholson used Galbatz's vehicle to search for Greg Nicholson. After a few failed attempts to lure him out of the Duncan home, Angela Johnson knocked on the door, posing as a lost cosmetics agent looking for directions. After Honkin came in behind her, Angela Johnson herded Lori and the kids into a separate room. Their plan was to force Nicholson into making a video statement exonerating Honkin. But things went sideways quickly after Honkin got the recording. Nicholson was tortured, beaten, and nearly knocked unconscious after Honkin smashed his skull with the butt of a gun. When Nicholson fell to the ground, Honkin strangled him into unconsciousness. Then Nicholson was bound and gagged. With grim determination, Dustin Honkin entered the room where Lori and her children were being held by Angela Johnson and violently smashed his gun over Lori's head, then choking her into into unconsciousness in front of her helpless children. When the girls wouldn't stop screaming, he strangled them as well. Greg Nicholson and the Duncan family were then loaded into the car and driven about 10 minutes outside of town. Dustin Honkin first took Greg and Lori out of the car, knelt them next to a previously dug shallow grave, and shot them each once in the head. He then came back, grabbed 10-year-old Candy Duncan and 6-year-old Amber Duncan, and executed each child with a bullet to the back of the head. The girls fell into the same shallow grave as their mother and Greg Nicholson. Several months later, Angela Johnson lured Terry DeGuise to his death. I told you. She called Terry, told him she was done with honking, and wanted to get back together. Angela arranged for them to meet, at a, to meet at a private remote location under the guise of not being seen by Dustin Honkin. When Terry DeGuise arrived at the meetup, he was ambushed by Honkin with a bat. Honkin savagely laid into Terry DeGuise. He wanted to beat him to death, but Terry DeGuise kept getting up and Honkin kept smashing him with the bat. Finally, when Honkin could swing no more, he put an end to Terry DeGuise with several bullets. Angela Johnson gave McNeese, McNeese maps and notes of where the bodies were buried. On October 13, 2000, the remains of Lori Duncan, her daughters, and Nicholson were discovered buried in a wooded area just off Cerro Gordo County Road, west of Mason City. Authorities used sonar technology and trained dogs to dredge the area that was on the map, but it took them three days to locate and excavate the bodies after removing tires, tree roots, and an opossum's burrow to get to where the bodies were. Thank God that they found them because that was like, after you said that, I was like, please tell me that those sweet babies and that woman are not stuck in this grave with the guy that basically lured them to their deaths. To their deaths. Mary Buckley, Lori's sister, was brought in to identify the remains. Mary saw her nieces every day and identified them by their clothes. A sundress worn by 10-year-old Candace and the swimsuit 6-year-old Amber always liked to play in. Following the revelation that Bobby McNeese wasn't her friend at all, Angela Johnson made a noose from bedsheets and attempted suicide in prison. She failed. On November 8, 2000, the body of DeGuise was discovered in a farm field one mile west 
of Bershanal. The state medical examiner determined all five people died of gunshot wounds. Both Lori and Greg showed signs of trauma to the head. Their hands and feet were bound with a clothesline-like rope and both suffered multiple gunshot wounds. The examiner also said the trauma to DeGuise's skull would have requ- it required massive reconstruction. Quote, he died hard. Honkin was charged with the murders in 2001 and prosecutors were seeking the death penalty. His trial wouldn't begin until September of 2004. And because of his long history of developing violent plans, Honkin was deemed an extreme security risk and forced to wear a stun belt and be shackled to the floor during trial. Over 65 witnesses were called to the stands, including several jailhouse informants who Honkin confessed to. I'm surprised his attorney didn't, or maybe he did, you know, but um, object to that, you know, because it... It, it was all concealed from open visual okay, sight. Okay, I was going to say because it yep, usually good call. It's 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 a it makes the jury think less of the of the defendant. Yeah, and well, in the, is what in, is claimed in this yeah. case the the jury was random, like it was unknown. It was a uh, uh, what do they call that? An uh, anonymous jury in this case as well. Interesting. Yeah, Honkin was eventually found guilty on seventeen counts related to the killings, and on October twenty seventh, two thousand four. Jurors recommended life sentences for Honkin for killing the adult victims and death sentences for killing the children. He was formally sentenced to death on October 11th, 2005. Now, this is, this is hard to say right here because shortly after that, Candy's father woke up from a coma to learn his daughter was dead. What? This entire time, the father of Candy Duncan had been in a coma and he came out. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's awful. In 2005, Angela Johnson was found guilty of five counts of murder in furtherance of a continuing criminal enterprise. Hang on a second. The, the nope. guy, had, he'd been in a coma for 12 years. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Johnson, so prosecutors said Johnson deserved to die since she willingly participated in the murder of children and lacked any remorse. Johnson's defense team pointed to her dysfunctional upbringing and argued that she didn't know Honkin was going to kill these victims. Johnson admitted that she was involved in Honkin's crimes, but blamed him for the murders and said he manipulated her. In June 2005, a federal jury condemned Angela Johnson to death on four counts, first woman sentenced to death in Iowa history. She was formally sentenced on December 19th, 2005. During her sentencing hearing, Johnson continued to blame Honkin, but said, quote, I regret I wasn't strong enough. On March 22nd, 2012, U.S. District Court Judge Mark Bennett throws out Johnson's death sentence and instead gave her a sentence of life in prison without parole. Uh, prosecutors do not attempt to take her back to trial. On July 17th, 2020, after a very long and drawn-out appeals process, Dustin Honkin became the first Iowan executed by lethal injection. Lori Duncan's father spent the rest of his life blaming himself for the loss of his granddaughters. The girls had wanted to stay overnight with him on July 25th, but it was not convenient for him at the time. So... 
That poor guy. That wasn't he was forever fault. haunted by that belief. Quote, if I had just watched the girls that night, they'd still be with us. Oh, that poor guy. At least Honkin got the injection in the end. Angela Johnson, so about her. Victim, yes, but I feel at the point that she made the relationship with Dustin Honkin, she knew full well what her role in this world was. And I felt like she saw that was an opportunity to rise to the top. This was the king of the world that I'm living in, and I want to be by his side. Now, yeah. wh I, whether she was manipulated, I don't, I don't know. I, I but think, I, oh, I'm sure there was a level of manipulation for sure. I, I mean, but there was absolutely a level of, of manipulation. However, I, I think that that's, this is one situation where she would know right from wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a question. Was she a victim of circumstance or was she a cunning you woman can, on her well, rise to the top but I, of I think the criminal you can, you underworld? Can, you can still be a victim and still be guilty of be what you've done. Wolf. You, you, you can be a victim and still need to be held accountable for something like that. Sources for this episode, the court documents, Honkin versus United States, primary source, uh, as well as Bob Link, stories in the Globe Gazette, and stories from Courtney Crowder and Tyler J. Davis from the Des Moines Register, wikiwan.com, historicnewspapers.com, imdb.com, and peopleofhistory.com. So thanks again to Laughing Sun. Thanks again to all of you. Be sure to follow us on social media. Don't forget to name the episode tonight. Rate. Subscribe, review on iTunes. Thank you, Laughing Sun. Thank, Thank you, Bismarck. You guys.